Well, I've been reminded, uh, how is the wind walking coming? Uh, does anyone have anything you want to share about those moments where the, the spirit seemed to take you a slightly different direction than you'd planned and, and there was, you know, a, a, a moment of encounter with him, if not with someone else? Um, how's that spontaneous moment living going for you? I'll give you all a chance. Let's <laughs> just say I'm convicted knowing that uh, Christ was God and, and had God in him because that is not a weak task. <laughs> and so if nothing else is convicting more of his, of his walk and his sovereignty and his abilities. I mean, what he had, yeah. what he came to do. Yeah, yeah. Because that's not easy. Yeah, you know, he, he said over and over, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And, and that had to be the case. Uh, it had to be. Uh, in order for God to move him where he wanted him and for Jesus to know he needed to go to Samaria. And to never have, uh, well, but what about? What? You know, but Lord, that's Samaria. Are you sure? I mean, how we second-guess God and talk him down, <laughs> so to speak, uh, with the caveats that we have in our lives, with the, uh, the considerations and um, the things that go against our mindset. And we will come against him with that, or we will bring that up. But are you sure? <laughs> God. Uh, I, this doesn't make sense. Jesus never, never did that. The minute he was prompted, he did. And he didn't question. And some of that may have been because he, you know, you and I question if we're hearing right. Because we know we have our own voices that turn around and, and uh, hinder um, the, uh, the radio waves. But um, I think beyond that, uh, there is this, this built-in mechanism in us that will question if it doesn't make sense whether or not it could be from God. If it makes sense, it probably isn't from God. <laughs> That's more the rule of thumb. Yeah. Anyone else have any thoughts or comments on this new order of person that we're called to be? And, uh, and moving with the Spirit, moving with the wind. I think what struck me is not being in a hurry to move to my all the time. To be, you know, aware. Just of what's happening around me for opportunity. And to linger. Right, with people and to listen when you may think, oh, I have this to do, I have that to do, and I need to get to this other, you know, class to help this teacher try to Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the real challenges for us here in America in, in the 21st century and in the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, is this drivenness uh, to, uh, to efficiency and to schedule, and we have always have things on, at hand uh, to do. 
But the real challenge is what you just said, to take time to be fully present with someone and take more time with them than we would have thought we needed to, to be willing to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges there for us is to begin to realize the possibility that God makes up the difference. If I live in that faith, that if I take time here, God will make up the difference over here in what appears to be a squeezed-in, running-late kind of scenario, that if I'm feeling led to linger and, and to spend more time here with someone, that the requirement is that you and I live in the faith that he can make up the difference. That lets us off the hook. If we're doing here what God wants us to do, then he'll get us over here when we're supposed to. Not, not necessarily when we think we need to be, but when we're supposed to be. Hmm? Yeah, his time. His time, not ours. Uh-huh. And then put the walnuts on top of it. They don't fit into the jar. But yeah. you put the big things in first. And then pour the rice in. It'll find its way. That part has been a, my visual picture, although I never get it. Yes. But bringing that up makes me think I need to get my jar. Yes. You know, we probably ought to have one just sitting. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's an excellent uh, that's an excellent example. Um, if we just get everything squared away as far as what God's will is concerned, uh, with Him, with our family, uh, with others, everything else does find its place. And and for me, if I'm walking in the full awareness of the faith that God will make up the difference. It takes me off the treadmill, and it allows for me to linger and not be anxious and have anxiety about, uh, about my schedule and my timetable. But that's an excellent illustration. I think I'm going to get one out and sit it somewhere, set it somewhere, yeah. Um, so Christ, you know, is... He called forth newness, and he called forth a new people. And, you know, I think down through the centuries, the intensity of that first century church, and maybe even the second century church, has gotten polluted and diluted, and then we'll have waves of revival that come back, and then we'll fall off. And I think for us here in America, in this century and time, um, you and I as Christians have to really think through what it is we are to look like. I submit we sound different, but we don't look different. 
and as, as a people. Now, there are plenty of individual exceptions, uh, but not so much that it creates a wave, that it creates when people in this country look at the Christian community, they see something different. Uh, I, I, don't, um, I don't think they do. Um, there's a letter, and I probably two or three years ago read this to you all, but I'm going to read it again. There was a letter written anonymously uh, in about the second century um, A.D. Uh, from um, to a um, probably a government official, Di, uh, Dionetus, Diog, Dionetus. Um, and they think that this letter has dated back to the second century. And I want to read to you, this anonymous person is describing the Christian community of the second century. For Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men, nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities. So this is obviously someone uh, writing to a Greek uh, official, probably Greek himself. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. As citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, they suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and yet gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. They are dishonored and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks. 
Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. To put it simply, the soul is to the body as Christians are to the world. The soul is spread through all parts of the body and Christians through all the cities of the world. The soul is in the body, but is not of the body. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. That is written by somebody who saw profoundly a difference in the second century uh, between the rest of the world and Christians. And, and part of that difference has to do with the attitude that the Christian community had then toward suffering, toward their rights. They had relinquished their rights, and they were willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, not for self-righteousness' sake, which is where most of our suffering comes from today in America as Christians. We come across as self-righteous, and then we say that we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. <laughs> it just kind of boggles my mind. Uh, we don't have humility. This, the people described here in the second century by this Greek uh, had humility. And it requires humility. Uh, Christ said, turn to uh, Matthew 18. In Matthew uh, 18, he gives uh, to us one of the keys of the kingdom. We'll start with verse 1. At the same time, the disciples uh, came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, the disciples hadn't yet gotten humility. It took a while. Uh, and Jesus called a little child unto them and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily, I say unto you, except you be converted, be changed, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The reason I call humility a key to the kingdom of heaven is because he said, unless you humble yourself and become as a child, you will not enter the kingdom. So humility is the mark of Christ on our soul. Where we are focused on him and think of others more than we think of ourselves. And where we're not trying to position ourselves for the best result for us. Where we're not trying to maneuver and manipulate and bargain with God on some things. Humility is the mark of Christ on our soul. And it is what allows you and me to move with the wind. Because we have to relinquish our own agenda. And it is only the humble who will relinquish their agenda. It is only those who understand what we are. You know, Mother Teresa was asked once, does it bother you when people criticize you? And she said, I am bothered neither by criticism nor by praise because I know what I am. That's humility. The Greek word for humility is like a 26-letter word. It's a huge word. They abbreviate it TAP, T-A-P, because it starts out with those three letters. It has to do with being low to the ground, uh, 
one understanding of humility, uh, the, the, the root word is humus. It's like that soil that is rich. And so when it says low to the ground, it, it's the idea that we see ourselves as humus, this rich soil, but we are low to the ground. And it is an accurate, not a, an inaccurate understanding of what we are. We were made from the earth. We were made. We're created. And so does that, as God said to Job, does that which was created contend with its maker? If we do, we don't have the sense of what we are. That we have to be lifted up. That we can do nothing of ourselves. That what we do and are able to do, it comes all from God. That is humility, and it is a humility that does not elevate ourselves or think more highly of ourselves than of other people and then of God's ways. And that is a key to the kingdom, and it's what allows you and me to have the faith to believe that when we walk in the Spirit with him, when we're moved by the wind to go and linger with people that were not on our timetable, were not on our agenda for the day, that he will make up the difference. And it sets us free. The tyranny of our own agenda is one of the greatest bondages you and I have. And in Galatians, he said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, to give us this great gift of liberty, so that you and I can move with the wind and be seen in how we live and move and treat others as uniquely different. And so that people might one day look at us and see something so unique in us, they might write a letter about how Christians look. That letter about Christians of the second century um, indicts us, but it also challenges you and me to reclaim the vitality that once the body of faith had, to reclaim the unique thumbprint that the body of Christ, the community of believers, once carried on the world. Uh, and, and that's going to happen one by one by one in small groups, but maybe there's a little ripple that begins to happen uh, maybe a small wave begins to happen as, as a collected small body of believers begins to say, I am going to do this different. I am going to look different. I will be different. So we're looking at, at that aspect of uh, stepping out into um, a different rhythm of life that the world takes note of and may not agree with us, may not like us, but is struck by us. Understands that they're seeing something different that is not of earth, not of human fabric, but of something else. So let's look and see what the first century uh, people, uh, believers did in Acts. Uh, turn over to Acts 5. We, we got into Acts last week um, a little bit. 
I want to continue looking at what these, this new wave of humankind looked like and what it meant to the world and how it looked. <coughs> In uh, Acts chapter 5, I'm going to start with uh, verse 11. And great fear came upon the church and upon many uh, as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, which is at the temple. So they're still worshiping at the Jewish temple. Uh, but they're all in one accord. We, we will see this phrase repeated several times uh, throughout Acts. These, the people seized by the Spirit of God were all in one unified voice, one spirit. And of uh, the rest did no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were added, all the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. There's a great wave of supernatural power bursting forth upon the people here, upon the community in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Miraculous things are happening through the hands of the apostles and of believers. I'm going to go on. Um, then the high priest rose up, all that were with them, which were in the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Let me repeat that. They're in prison. They have been assailed by the Sadducees, church sect, church officials, and the angel of the Lord opens the prison door that the church temple people had put them in and says, go back to the temple and speak to the people there all the words of this life, this life that you have been given, this life that you are now living. This life you've been called into, speak the words of this life. Speak the words of your life in Christ now and what this life looks like, what it means. They didn't say, well, are, you sh are we hearing you right here? You want us to go right back into the lion's den? Yes, Daniel. Yeah, I do. I'll be with you there. They didn't get into their logical mindset. They went. And when, verse, verse 21, and when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. They just immediately went. They didn't have their own caveats that they had to bring up to the Lord uh, to discuss. 
but what about this and what about that? That is our signature on Christianity today. That is ours. That was not theirs. But the high priest came and they were with him and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent uh, to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them. So they were very confused at this, um, at this moment. Um, go on down to verse 42. So the disciples in, in the interim are preaching and teaching. And daily in the temple and in every house, the believers cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. It's, it's the apostles mostly, but what we're beginning to find here is that believers are doing this. It's not just apostles. Daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Turn to chapter 8, uh, verse 5. Well, I actually want to, um, I want to start with verse 1, actually, because there's a good lead-in here. Saul was consenting unto his death, the death of uh, Stephen. And at the same time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there was a great persecution that burst forth upon not just the apostles, but believers. And it scattered them from Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. And ultimately, it sent them all throughout uh, Asia, Turkey particularly. Uh, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the, uh, of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, uh, uh, and hailing men and women committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. This is not now the apostles. This is Jane Doe and John Doe Christian. When they were scattered by persecution, everywhere they went, they preached the word. They preached it with their lives and with their words. Now, what they said then is probably going to look a little different for us today. Because this was the good news that all the world had been waiting for for all time, and suddenly they were in the middle of this miraculous eye of the storm in which God had intervened upon earth in, in a man, Jesus Christ, who for the first time in human history broke the barriers of death and rose again. I mean, the magnitude of that was absolutely all over the believers. And they were telling the world of the good news. That good news is still salient today, obviously. But our country has sort of been numbed out by our words. And I think it makes it even more imperative that they see the word of God living itself out in our flesh. That they see the word not just hear the word. I think our, our, our country today, it, the, the non-believing part is just sort of anesthetized to 
our words. But if they see the living word of God becoming flesh in our flesh and dwelling among men in us, and they see Christ, they see this revolutionary, then it brings fresh wind to our words. It brings something to their lives that they realize is lacking. And it brings authenticity to what we say. And, and we have to credential ourselves. I, the, the people of the first century credentialed themselves by being willing to face persecution, by being willing to die, by, by being willing to, no matter what the cost was, tell people of this great news. We've, not, we've lost our credentials as a, as a community. Not as, there are individuals that have not, but as a broad brush community, we have sort of lost our credentials with the world because we've argued with the world like the world argues. We have confronted the world like the world confronts. We look like the world, sort of. We don't talk like the world. Our words sound okay, but how they are delivered and the instrument through which our words are delivered, that's where our credentials have been, have been lost. And you and I are, are challenged by the life of Christ and by the first and second century uh, Christians to reclaim our credentials. And, and that is when we go out into the world, when we live at home, that we seek to live it authentically, that we seek to live Christ and let Christ live in us and be seen, a light in us. And so that's what these people did. They lived and spoke both truth and light, salt and light. They were. And it began to change the known world, in part because the message was so radical, so unbelievable, and yet these people's lives bore witness to its validity and to its truth. So there was a great flame that burst forth across the world because these people who were scattered didn't wait for the apostles to come and preach and teach. They preached and taught with their own words and their own lives. And it changed uh, Asia. It changed the known world. Um, our challenge is a little different because we've got to reclaim how we live and how we look. Uh, and, and if we are already reclaiming it, then we have daily to, to go before the Lord and let him live his life out through our flesh. Let the word become flesh in us and dwell among men in our flesh today. It's another kind of incarnation. You and I are asked to live an incarnate life. Uh, incarnation didn't, is not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago, though indeed it did. But with the birth of every believer is the birth of God in flesh. Incarnate in your flesh now. He no longer has the life of Jesus here on earth to do his bidding. He has you and me. And so he has incarnated in us 
and ask us to let him become flesh again in us and dwell among men today through us so that people might see him and glorify him through us. That's what we're looking at here in, uh, in Acts. And I just want to go ahead and read some other examples. I turn over to um, chapter 9. Uh, 32. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all the quarters, all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, uh, And as um, Jesus Christ makes you whole, uh, rise and take up your bed. And he arose and immediately uh, took up his bed. Uh, go jump on over to 36. Now there were at Joppa, there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an un, uh, upper chamber and... Um, for as much as Lydda was close to Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent unto him two men, desiring that he would not delay to come to them. And then Peter arose and went with them. Are you noticing how like Christ Peter is here? The minute he was sent for, you know, remember the centurion that we looked at a couple of Sundays ago? Came and said, my servant is tormented, grievously ill. And Jesus said, what? He said, I'll go. He was on his way to Peter's house. But he said, I'll go. Peter here is sent. He's over in, in Lydda. And um, he's suddenly sent for, and he immediately goes. He's passing through a countryside, and he goes over here. We see movement. We see these people going with the wind, just like Jesus did unconstrained by what they, where they think they need to be, constrained only by this wind of the Spirit that blows. No one knows where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. We are wind walkers. We are to walk with the wind. That word for wind in John 3, 8 is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, and it means wind or breath the wind of God, the breath of the Spirit. He moves us. And so you see this here in, in the, the, throughout the entire book of Acts. Uh, turn over to chapter 11. Uh, start with verse 19. <coughs> now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, and Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. These are mere Christians that went, beginning to spread out into Turkey, into Antioch. And they are preaching. They are speaking ever of the hope that lies within them, as Paul said. And uh, in, in, this, uh, in this scenario here in uh, chapter 11, uh, it, this is where the change is beginning to come from just speaking and preaching to the Jews to speaking and preaching to the Gentiles. 
as well. And some of them, verse uh, 20, were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and when they were come to Antioch, they spoke unto the, uh, the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ to the Greeks. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came to the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. There's just an immediacy of response by church officials, by church leaders, not officials, but leaders, and by the individual members, an immediacy of response to the movement and the stirring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 25, then uh, Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul. He went first here to the Antioch area, then he went to, to seek Saul, who had been uh, converted. And when he found him, he brought him back into Antioch. What we see is availability. The new century church was simply available. The, the individuals, believers, were available to God. They were available to the Holy Spirit. Turn over to chapter 13, uh, verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon uh, that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and um, Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. But when they had fasted and prayed and, when they had fasted and, prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them. There is this God giving instructions, immediate response to it, and, and God is calling people over and over throughout this part of the world to be sent. He has called you and me. As the Lord has sent me into the world, even so send I you. He calls us, and then he sends us out. He has called you and me to himself. By faith, we have accepted that. We have answered that call. We have come to stand with him and to stand by him and for him to be in us and stand in us. And the next step is for him to send you and me out. Well, what does that look like? It looks like wherever you live and work, you've been sent. You've been sent to speak the good news with your life. I think it was Luther that said, preach the gospel boldly, and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel with your life. You and I are sent. Wherever your work is, Wherever your sphere of influence daily is, you've been sent to preach the word of God boldly with your life. When necessary, use words. Let's look a few uh, a few others here. Um, 
go on down here even in first, uh, verse 4. And so they, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, departed to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos and found a certain sorcerer there, they, they encountered this sorcerer. So you see that they are moving, constantly being sent out, moving in their sphere, moving where the Lord leads them, and sometimes moving in confusion. Uh, move on over to chapter 16, and we see Paul, now Paul, who was Saul, as you know. Let's start with verse 4 of chapter 16 uh, of Acts. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees to keep. In other words, you have leaders now taking messages and taking letters from the leadership, uh, the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, uh, giving guidance in how to live, guidance in how to do this new church. How, so th there, there were instructions or decrees for them to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And when they had gone throughout Figri, Figia, sorry, and the region of Galatia, which is in Turkey, the area of Turkey today, now this is Paul and Timothy, okay, and also Luke. They had gone to Phygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. They went there, and then they were forbidden at that moment to preach there. After they were come to Mysia, they wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not, told them not to go. And they passing by Mysia, the distance between these, these uh, places is about 30 miles. So they walked about 30 miles to go preach at this place, and the Holy Spirit said, no, don't, do, don't go in there. So they kept walking another 30, 32 miles and the Holy Spirit, to preach at the next place. And the Holy Spirit said, no, don't go in there. And in my American mindset, I'm thinking, well, Lord, couldn't you have told me that before I walked 60 miles? I mean, I, I could have heard, but I, I think the Lord was sort of connecting the dots, taking them through the, the error, if you want to call it an error, the error in their understanding of where they needed to go. God was still leading them to where he wanted them to be. Um, so you look here, um, verse 7, he said the, the Holy Spirit told them not to go in. Verse 8, and they passing by Mysia, came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia, north of Greece, Philip of Macedonia, father of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great ruled in Greece. His father was of Macedonia, just to the north of Greece. And there was this vision 
that a man stood in Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. But he had walked 60 miles to no avail to get this vision. That in the American approach to God would have been, you know, kind of arguing with God. Why couldn't you have just told me this before I went all this way? And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go. That's why I say Luke was with him here, because now it becomes a we. And Luke wrote the, the book of Acts. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, setting uh, out from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia. And this is where the church of the letter to the Philippians was established in the home of Lydia, who was a seller of purple. They met Lydia there. They went and sat down by some women in a place where it was common for people to come and pray. The, the, these three, uh, Timothy, uh, Paul, and Luke, went to where there was a common place of prayer. These women were praying. He introduced Lydia, a businesswoman in the community, to who Christ was, to whom they should pray. And she accepted Christ as her Savior and her household. And the first church in Macedonia was established in her home. And so the letter to the Philippians was written to her church. Just one woman, and yet it created the church in Macedonia. Uh, you think of um, uh, Philip, um, who was sent to walk a vast distance through the desert, the Gaza area, uh, to an Ethiopian down toward Egypt. I don't know how many miles that was, probably 150 miles. He walked in the desert. God told him just to go there. There's somebody that's want, trying to understand the book of Isaiah. One person, a eunuch, And Philip goes to him. He sees him sitting by the river trying to figure out the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip goes over and explains it to him. The man's eyes are opened. He believes in Christ. And he said, do you want to be baptized? And Philip baptizes him in the river right there. And then Philip is translated back. He just appears in Jerusalem. One person in Macedonia was responsible for creating the beginning of the entire Philippian church, a woman. One man in Ethiopia was noticed by God, and poor Philip was ordained to walk all that distance and then be blessed at the saving of a soul, a single soul. 
It speaks to the ends to which our Lord will go to reach a single soul. We don't know what the result was in Ethiopia. But we do know that in, by the third century, there was an amazingly strong church in Ethiopia and in northern Egypt, Alexandria. Amazingly strong church. Uh, St. Augustine, I think, came out of that area. So we can kind of put the pieces together and connect the dots and, and know that probably this one person that was changed by Philip and that Philip was sacrificially, he wasn't arguing and griping and, you know, with the Lord. We, we, we're not privy to that. I, so I think because that Bible is so honest, he didn't. He gladly went where the Spirit sent him. And so revival Resurrection life broke out in these places and formed toeholds in a darkened world, became cities of light because the people of that day and age were available. They went with the Spirit. They walked with the wind. No one knows where the wind is coming from or where it is going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would just impress upon us the beauty of your ways, the urgency of your call, the imperative that we answer Pry our hearts open to be so available to you that we really will go with the wind and we will not question. We'll delight in your ways and in the adventure that unfolds before us as we walk in your wind. Help us to long for that adventure, to delight in it. Thank you that you choose to include us in changing of lives and in the changing of this world. Make us faithful to you, to your spirit, so that we can speak of this life that we now have. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You all have a good week. and.